Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. As we continue on in our study through this dynamic little book. Lord willing, we have several weeks left still in this book. Looks like we will probably wrap up this study and then move into our next sometime around the end of June. So just to chart a course ahead for you, if you're curious about how much longer we'll be in First Peter, it looks like we'll be here until the end of June, as best as I can tell. First Peter chapter 4, we'll look at the first six verses this morning as we work our way through this closing section. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Father, the author of this word, by your Spirit, we ask now that by that same Spirit you would illumine our minds, cause us to have understanding, and more than that, to embrace it in faith, with joy, and in love for what you have taught us here. We ask, Father, that you would conform us by this word, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any sword, that you would pierce down to the very marrow of our being, and that you would conform us to the image, to the likeness, to the character of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. May we drink again deeply at the well of His resurrection and the power that He is and that He affords to all who believe and follow and following Him. Help us, Lord. We are Your children. Teach us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've titled the message this morning simply this, Following Our Exalted King. Expectations, I think we would all agree, are critical for preparation. If you want to prepare for anything in your life, you need to have certain expectations that help you in the preparation. If you're going to take an exam, young people who are in school, you, you need to have clearly defined goals as to what you hope to accomplish in that examination. And in establishing the goals of what you hope to accomplish, you prepare accordingly, according to your expectations. Preparation is critical then for victory. 
Every one of us who has succeeded in anything in life knows that preparation is key for victory. Hope is not a strategy without preparation. And so we must not only have proper expectations that aid us in preparation, we must follow through and execute that preparation in order to be victorious in any endeavor. And it is no different in the Christian life. There are expectations that Scripture lines out and delineates for us that are clearly defined so that we can, as believers, in God's grace, make appropriate preparations. Now, I'm thankful, and I hope you are as well, and I hope you see that that the God we serve is gracious in that He does not only set the objectives, but He sets the means by which we accomplish those. He sets forth and gives us the tools to secure victory in following Him. We're not left alone. We may feel alone in this world at times, but we are never alone knowing this, that our Father and our God has given us the expectations as well as the tools to live a Christian life that ends in pleasing Him, which is the ultimate victory. So let me ask you the question this morning. Let me ask myself the question. What are your expectations for the Christian life? What do you expect? What are your goals? What do you hope to accomplish in this life as a Christian? Not the, you know, I think the terminology is something we talk about the Christian life that can almost become mystical. What, what do you mean by the Christian life? Is there like two lives that we live? No. I'm talking about living your life as a Christian in totality. Realizing that there is no divide in secular and sacred. We have one life. One life to live for our Master, and we are to live so as to be pleasing to Him in every way. What, Christian, is your expectation for this life? Your expectation will determine then how you prepare. How you prepare will determine the extent of victory which you will live out for Christ. And so in Peter's opening verses here in chapter 4, he calls us to be armed with several preparations that I want to call to your attention this morning. Peter calls us to be armed with preparations for following our exalted, victorious Savior. Through Him, by His strength, for His glory. I want you to see, first of all, this morning as we dive into the text, that Peter calls us to prepare our minds for victory. Prepare the mind, Peter says. Notice what he says in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Now I want you to to go back, and this is probably overstating the, the cause or stating it too many times because I know that we've mentioned this many times. But when Peter writes, therefore, he is tying it to what preceded it particularly verses 18 through 22. He ties us to the victory in Jesus Christ. As believers, we don't have another reality. As believers, our reality is locked into this sphere and this truth that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. 
And as we gather on every Lord's Day, that's what we're celebrating when we wake up every morning and we quote Lamentations 3.23 that His mercies are new every morning. They are new every morning because there is an empty tomb. Christ is risen. Christ the victor in verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3 is what Peter is wanting us to look back on. Look back at verse 22. Where is Jesus now? Jesus is at the right hand of God. He has gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Everything is under the feet of your Lord. Everything. Jesus has won. Does, does, does this life discourage you? Well, you're not human if it doesn't. Is there pain that is felt in this life? Yes. That's why we have the Psalms. And yet, over all of those things, we, we come to realize, don't we, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is ruler of them all. The greatest enemy we face is already under the feet of our king. Now for Peter's readers, in his day undergoing oppression and persecution at times, and we're experiencing more of those, we don't need to be discouraged as believers. We need to understand this, our king is one. Doesn't mean life is going to be you know, rainbows and unicorns, but our Savior has won. And we can hope in that and we can rest in that and we can stay focused on that. And so Peter calls us to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Peter, in mentioning that simple therefore, does not immediately go into a list of here are the ten things you need to do to be successful. Here are ten things you need to avoid. Because just as surely as there are ten, he would have left out the eleventh. And you'll discover that as soon as you leave today. But he didn't address this. But what he does give us is is an overarching, an overcoming, a, a comprehensive principle. And that is this. Keep your eyes on Christ. Christian, if we're going to live victoriously for Christ in this life, our eyes must be fixed upon Him. There is no self-betterment. There is no self-improvement. There is no uh, self-help plan that will help us. Only a mind fixed on Christ. Do you want to be successful in the Christian life? Do you want to live successfully this life for Christ, then keep your eyes on Christ. And not only do we look at Him, we imitate what He did. We seek to duplicate what we find in Christ in our own lives. I want you to notice what Peter goes on to say. Therefore, since Christ, pointing us back to the realities of the resurrection and the victory that He has won over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave. And don't forget what our Lord did. Let me just back up to last week. So victorious is our Lord that in His death, though body, His human body was crucified and died and laid in a tomb, His spirit is alive and He is in the abyss preaching to spirits in prison. That's how victorious He is. 
He's telling them he's one. He is challenging them. He is telling them that they are now under his feet. Jesus was not idle the three days that he was in the tomb. He is, according to Peter, in the abyss preaching. According to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. And and Peter will tie in with that in verse 6 this morning of chapter 4. But don't forget just how victorious Christ is. But our lives will only be victorious to the degree that Christ is our focal point and the mind of Christ becomes ours. The writer of Hebrews wrote this in chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. For consider Him, look to Jesus, who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The quickest way To be discouraged in the Christian life is to take your eyes off Jesus. To to cease from focusing in on the victory and the overwhelming power that is in Christ. Good diagnosis. Are you discouraged this morning? The next time you become discouraged, because let's face it, we're all human, it's going to happen. Evaluate your perspective evaluate whom you are looking to evaluate where you are looking consider him consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart that's what peter is doing here he is trying to get these christians in the first century this new to this faith this brand new faith in the world this new truth of the resurrection he is trying to get them to stay focused on that so that they wouldn't become discouraged and quit. We need that same message today, brothers and sisters. We need to be challenged and always prodded to keep our eyes on Christ and to adopt the mind of Christ. I hate to tell you this, there is no other alternative for you. Mardell is not going to magically put out a stack of books that is the next bestseller that's going to help you accomplish that. Only Christ. Your favorite podcast isn't going to all of a sudden have an episode that just absolutely turns the corner and helps Christians know Christ will help us. There's no new program. There is no self-disciplined. There's no improved life. Only Christ. And only to the degree that we adapt the mind of Christ for our lives. Isn't it odd? Just think with me for a moment. Isn't it odd that we as Christians so often look to make it through life with the poor substitutes that can never measure up to Christ? I mean, here we are, we have an empty tomb. We have a Christ that has risen and led captivity captive. We have a Christ who has overcome death. We have a Christ who's preached to the spirits in prison. We have a Christ who's done all of this. We have a Christ who holds our next breath in His hands. We have a Christ who's promised He's returning. We have a Christ who's given us His Word. And yet we go looking for other things. What poor substitutes. And what sad people we are for doing so. Could there be anything more powerful? Than our Christ? 
And so Peter is pushing us and compelling us to stay focused on Christ. Christ is always present in us. He is always available to us. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We may always find mercy and grace to help through our great high priest. The same power that raises the dead is always available to us as believers. The challenge then for us is then, brothers and sisters, if we expect to be victorious in this life, then we must prepare accordingly. We must prepare by keeping our focus on the Lord Jesus. It's not hypothetical. It's reality. Christ is available for the tempted and the tried. Those who need strength. But I want you to notice as we move on the content of Peter's command. He says we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose. Arm ourselves with the same purpose. The the reality is this. Christ did suffer. Christ did suffer. He suffered in His body. He suffered in His humanity. And He ultimately died in His humanity. And He did so having adopted a certain mindset. And the content of our preparation, according to Peter, Peter, is this. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. What purpose did Jesus have? Paul says it this way in Philippians 2.5, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's not just Peter saying that. It is the, the entire witness of the authors of Scripture commanding us, Exhorting us to have the mind of Christ. What was that call? That He became obedient to death. Having taken upon Him the form of a slave, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For what purpose, Jesus? To do away with sin. To fight sin. To battle against that which is contrary to the holy nature of the Godhead. Why did Jesus come? To deal with sin. To deal with our sin. Notice Peter's military command. It's in the imperative. Arm yourselves. Christian, you do not have a choice. You are being commanded. Arm yourselves. Do it. No excuses. No alternatives. Arm yourselves. Take up arms in this way, Peter says. This is the way to victory. What Christ did in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, has a direct impact on everyone in the room this morning. That He suffered and died in our place. But it began with His mind that He determined to go and do battle on our behalf. Why? Again, to achieve complete victory over sin. Why don't you go back to Philippians chapter 3 with me. Verse 
Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is wrestling through this. Paul gives his bona fides, his credentials, verses 2 through 6. And then he launches into a masterpiece in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul had an entire tool chest full of things that he could have relied on, humanly speaking. But he jettisons every one of those for the sake of Christ. More than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. How do we know Him? By meditating on Him, by focusing upon Him. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, those things he mentioned in verses 2 through 6, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, What Paul is saying is that he is doing exactly what Peter has exhorted them to do. To focus his mind upon Christ. To adapt the same mentality as Christ. To adapt the same goals as Christ. And that is his battle over sin. Jesus came and suffered for righteousness. Not because he had sin, but because we have sin. To be more specific, Jesus came and He suffered for our righteousness. His righteousness has never been questioned. His righteousness has always been acceptable. The suffering of Jesus then comes for our righteousness. And so what Peter is calling us to is the mind of Christ to suffer for righteousness' sake. This is our moment, brothers and sisters. This is our time. This is our battle. Whatever the cost, arm yourself as Christ did for the purpose of righteousness, even though as Paul gives testimony to in Philippians 3, it will cost you everything. Paul says, everything in my life I counted as rubbish, as loss, that I might know Christ. Do you know Christ? Not just in some simple prayer that you pray, but do you know Him? Are you looking to Him? Is your mind fixed upon Him? Brothers and sisters, there is a battle ahead of all of us. There is a battle with our own flesh. There is a battle against an opposition in the world. Arm yourselves with the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might be victorious in the end with Him. Peter says, arm yourself for the same purpose, because He who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
Jesus' mindset led him to the cross. The disgusting nature of our sin, brothers and sisters, the abhorrent nature of our sin was so severe that it led the sinless, perfect Son of God to a cross. But it was not His. It was yours. And there He suffered and died in your place to resolve and absolve you of sin. Our battle for righteousness and against sin then must be equally committed to follow the example of Jesus. The world is coming at us in a great onslaught. If you don't see that, I don't know how to help you. But the world is coming upon us in the arena of sin. Let's call it what it is. To invite Christians, to compel Christians, to force Christians into rationalizing, participating in, compromising into, excusing the very things that are contrary to the nature of God. And we need to be armed in our minds with the mind of Christ that we will do whatever is necessary to battle sin. To stand against our own sin, the sin that we are tempted with from the world around us, we must oppose it with the mind of Christ for He alone has overcome it. Legislation though it is a tool God uses at times, cannot overcome sin. Only Christ can do that. Therefore, we must arm our minds with Christ in opposing it. Like any earthly battle, you need to be determined to win if you're going to go fight. Otherwise, don't start. Do you want to win the battle? Do you want to come out victorious with Christ? Then you must be determined to win. The Christian life, life as a Christian in this world, is serious. And we must be determined to engage with all the power of an empty tomb, having our mind focused on Christ, armed with the truths of Scripture that point us to Christ, if we are to even begin to engage. Do you desire to win the battle? Are you shrinking back already? Has fear so captivated your heart and your mind as it certainly would have done in the first century for these Christians to where they begin to soften and begin to retreat and we see it going on all around us, brothers and sisters, in language. Don't give up language. Don't give up definitions. Don't give up words. They matter. Engage with grace. and Engage with boldness. Engage with the mind of Christ. Not to compromise. Not to run and hide. Because we know this, Christ is one. Look at the end of verse 22. Everything is subjected to Him. Everything. Oh, He hasn't put on the full demonstration of what that's going to look like yet, but He will. And He's already won. So don't retreat. Don't. Don't shrink back. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ because the essence is this. We're not fighting an earthly battle against flesh and blood. We are fighting a spiritual battle against sin. A 
That's the root of all of this. And you cannot use human tools to accomplish heavenly purposes. Therefore, arm yourself with Christ. Look at the prize Peter mentioned. Verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Is that your prize? Do you prize that? Go back to the end of verse 1. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Hey, no joke. You die. You don't have to worry about sin anymore. I think one of the most beautiful testimonies, one of the most beautiful pictures of heaven came from the lips of Johnny Erickson Tata, listening to her talk about heaven. I'll never forget it. She said, the thing that I look forward to most about heaven is not being able to get up out of this wheelchair and run. But it's being free from the very presence of sin. Now that is a mature Christian. There's somebody who gets it. That, that, that's our goal, to, to fight to the death. And Christ has won. He died and he, he, there is no more sin to be atoned for. He's atoned for it for all. And you and I, when we die to ourselves and when we are buried in baptism with Christ and raised to newness of life, we've died to that old man. And we must continue to do so. In order to fight for the prize. No, occasionally that old man, as Paul says in Romans 7, he comes back, doesn't he? He's the unwelcome visitor. We've got to continue to fight. Fight with the work of Christ, the person of Christ. So once we're determined that this fight that we are in is worth fighting, we must engage and we must fight to win. Having armed ourselves with the love of righteousness and Hatred of sin as Christ is. Once we have suffered and died to sin in our own flesh, then and only then can we claim the victory as Christ did. We have His mind. When we're on the path to victory with Him. What does that take? Practical terms, what does that take in the Christian life? It takes, number one, a supreme love for righteousness. Not a, that's okay. But a love for the righteousness that is Christ. That is characteristic of the Godhead. Do we love that kind of righteousness? Your flesh doesn't. It's only by the new man created by the Holy Spirit that you can love righteousness. Do you love righteousness? That's a, that's a mark of, Someone who's genuinely regenerate and born again. They love righteousness. Love what's true and good. Secondly, a hatred of sin. A hatred of sin to the point of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I am willing to burn it down and burn it all for the sake of righteousness. I hate my sin. I hated the pride that came along with it. Paul wasn't out living an immoral life of drunkenness. Paul, though, was religiously snobbish. Pride filled his heart. Paul says, I'd burn it all for the sake of knowing the righteousness that is in Christ. I hated my sin. 
Third, in order to obtain that prize, it requires a willingness to suffer in order to both love righteousness and hate sin. If you've ever been told that the Christian life is easy, you've been lied to. The Christian life is a battle. It's never painted any other way in Scripture. That's a, that's a modern invention in a culture that has had it too easy. That is a cultural Christianity that comes from the depths of hell, not the heights of heaven through the Word of God. The Christian life is a fight. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Take up your cross. What is a cross? It is an instrument of suffering and death. Our struggle is that we don't really at all times embrace these, do we? We don't always love righteousness. Sometimes it feels good to be angry. Sometimes it feels good to give in to temptation. But if you're a believer, you know how short-lived that feeling is. We want to see victory over our sin. Let's not talk about sin in generalities as if it might belong to somebody else. Let's talk about it in real terms as if it's ours because it is. If we want to see victory over our sin, my sin, if we want to endure against the oppression and persecution of the world who is trying to get at Christ by getting at us, We must adopt these keys for winning the prize. To love Christ, to love the righteousness of Christ, to hate sin, and to be willing to suffer for their sake. Notice what Peter says. There are two prizes when the Christian has armed themselves with the mind of Christ. Number one, sin is rendered defeated at the end of verse 1. Secondly, the will of God is lived and cherished Verse 2. Every child loves to please their parents. In fact, I, I would venture to say that everyone in here who knows how to ride a bicycle had their first crash on a bicycle because once you took off and you realized you were on two wheels by yourself, the reason you crashed was because you turned to look to see if mom and dad were cheering. My kids have been that way. In their endeavors, they turn around to look to see if mom and dad are pleased. Brothers and sisters, we must value the smile of God, the approval of God, to live out the will of God. Do we value this prize? Is this what we want? Or is our pleasure and our comfort and our acceptance and our peace with our flesh and the world around us, is it of a higher value so that we compromise? Or are we willing to engage those enemies? That's a sincere question, by the way. That's not rhetoric. Now it's time for the church to decide, is my pleasure, my comfort, my 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 reputation, my acceptance by the world is peace with the world around me? Is it of more value or is the will of God of higher value to me? If the will of God is, then you must be willing to fight 
to battle the things that God battles. We as Christians will never meet the enemies of God on the battlefield of the culture around us or the flesh within us in a victorious way unless we determine to fight that battle and win. So Peter goes on and he says, now, I've spoken to you about preparing your mind. Now you need to prepare your life because you're going to be opposed. Secondly, Peter says, prepare your life for opposition. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How often, Jesus? Daily. Every day. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus closing out his discourse, preparing his disciples for what is inevitably to follow after his departure, says this, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But fear not. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Well, that's exactly what Peter is saying, isn't it? In chapter 3, verse 22. The battle against sin is foremost an inner battle of our own flesh. But we go to Paul in Romans chapter 6 and we read this. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What was that like? Total victory. No insurgencies. Jesus ran the battlefield. He cleared it. There are no enemies left. He has conquered death. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the last enemy to be conquered. And Jesus conquered it. Continuing on, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for He who has died is freed from sin. Hmm, it seems like Peter is quoting Paul here at the end of verse 1 in chapter 4, doesn't it? He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's won. To put it another way, as D. Edmund Hebert, the commentator, says, willingness to suffer for righteousness is not natural. But it comes only through Christ. Notice how Peter prepares their life for opposition. First of all, he, he prepares them to oppose their past. For the time has already passed. He's referring to what they were before they came to Christ. For you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. The focus on this passage is, yes, on the individual sins that he uses to characterize their former life. But the, the real idea is this, that these are all part of a pagan lifestyle. A ritualistic pagan lifestyle that characterizes their past. The realization for all of us, if we take sin seriously, is this. For too long we lived in sin. could survey the, the congregation, and I know that we have a broad spectrum here. Some of you were saved as small children. Praise God for that. Some of you were saved in adulthood and your life looked more like what Peter describes here perhaps than what 
it would have if you had come to Christ as a child. But the reality for all of us is that we live too long in sin. No matter how early we were saved, we lived far too long separated from our Creator in rebellion against the Father. Peter's plain terminology says, no, that's enough. That's more than enough what you have already done. Living that way sinfully. And that in itself becomes a motivation to battle our flesh, to reject the pressures of the world, to indulge in sin. I'll, I'll never forget one of my, uh, an individual who became one of my friends in college was not someone I really cared to be around the first couple of years. He was older than the rest of us. He came to Christ later in life. He had lived a very difficult life. He had been uh, in a maximum security federal prison for various crimes. And when I got to know him at first, he, he he was abrasive to say the least. He was so zealous for Christ that he would just pick your life apart. Why weren't you up at 4 a.m. praying? I don't understand you Christian kids, you know. But then the longer I knew him, the more I realized he was so motivated. He was so grateful to have been saved from his sin that he was just zealous. He needed some knowledge to temper that zeal. But that's what caused it. Came to, to be a, a good friend. And what Peter is saying that, listen, you're, you, you need to reflect back on your life of sin. Do you realize what your sin did? Do you realize what your sin cost? Do you realize how God views your sin? We ought to weep and mourn over our sin. Jesus says so. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What's he talking about? Mourning over sin. Do you realize it and then say, I don't care, God, how short a time or long a time. It was far too long that I lived in sin. Now, the, the word that Peter chooses to, to use here for living is not the, the typical Greek word for life. Rather, it is a different word that simply means to be active in pursuing something. In other words, we could, we could literally say you ran from sin to sin to sin to sin for far too long. You spent your whole life looking for, prior to Christ, an opportunity to sin. You finish one, you're looking for the next one. And while you're doing that, when you're dreaming of what comes after that, Peter says that's what an unsaved life is like. And it is all contrary to the will of God. What does it look like? Peter says you followed a, a course of sensuality. The word literally means unbridled, unrestrained sin that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. Now let me tell you something. To use this terminology in the New Testament was something. Because society tolerated a whole lot. There was open immorality. It was understood 
that immorality was even part of their pagan worship. It was moral impurity of the rankest orders in the streets for all to see. And Peter says, you've even gone beyond that. He says, you've engaged in lust. Again, another broad category uh, for burning inner desires. Uh, Hebert in his commentary categorized these as as inner vicious desires. Not just desi- desires, but vicious desires. Have you, de- have you seen that? That sin is vicious? Sin is destructive. Sin has nobody's best interest at heart. Not even yours. The, the, the devil may lie and tell you that, he, that it does, but it doesn't. Drunkenness. This is the only time this particular Greek word is used in the New Testament, but it refers to a habitual drunk or what we might call an alcoholic. They're, they're constantly drunk. He goes on, he talks about carousing. These are feasts that were named for various pagan gods, sometimes translated in English as an orgy. Feast for gods like Bacchus that would begin in a home and then overflow into the streets where nothing is left to the imagination. These were also part of the athletic culture of the day. As someone would win the, the, the Isthmian Games or the Olympic Games and they would be celebrated in these excessive ways. He talks about drinking parties. Again, the implication is excess. It's drunkenness. And he says all of these, when he comes down to the end of the list, he says this, all of these are abominable idolatries. They actually think they are doing something good and right. It is part of pagan worship. Hebert calls it the taproot of all other evils. That they are pursuing something other than what? What Peter says at the end of verse 2, the will of God. They are pursuing everything but the will of God. And this is where it has landed them. Christian, here's what you need to be aware of. Now some of you heard me read that list and you're going, yeah, I saw that at halftime at the Super Bowl. That's on primetime television. That's the culture, isn't it? And it's growing more and more so. So here's what you need to be aware of. This will be accepted and praised by the culture. But it will be cursed when we don't participate in it. It is totally unacceptable in the eyes of God. But it is totally acceptable in the eyes of the world. Immoral feasts, drunkenness, masquerading as worship of something. A God that doesn't even exist except in the minds of evil men. That's where we're living today, brothers and sisters. The, the, the culture around us has is, is become its own religion. Complete with sacraments. Complete with the, the immoral, immoral nature just like in Peter's day. And we must stand to oppose that. How do we oppose it? Look what he says. Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, back up verse 4. 
In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Christian, do you know what's coming for us? If it's not already happening to you, it will. But for the sake of the will of God over against the will of man and sinful culture, they're going to malign us. Not because we're standing up and in their faces screaming that they're not allowed to do that, but simply because we stay home and we refrain. Simply because we go to church. Whoever thought that would become controversial? And we worship. Simply because we raise our children to believe that God created men and women to be men and women. To, 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 to do all that Scripture has taught and requires, we will be opposed. They are going to think it odd that you don't run with them into all their excesses. You used to. Why not now? Why aren't you joining in with all the old crowd? And when we don't do that, they are going to malign us. We've got to be spiritually determined. Spiritually prepared for the onslaught that's coming. We must be armed with the mind of Christ, not running with the culture. Rather, against the culture. Not going into their profligate living. It's interesting, the wording here literally means the swamp of overflow from filth. Cities had overflow areas where filth would run. And Peter's saying they're going to be surprised when you don't run into that dissipation, that swamp of filth with them. Because of our abstention, we're going to be maligned. The word is blasphemao, to be blasphemed. To be demeaned, to be denigrated, to be lied about, to be maligned. To injure by reputation. To be defamed. Christian without a mindset set on the suffering of Jesus and His ultimate victory that frees us from that lifestyle, we don't have a chance. The pressure is great. It's going to become greater. And so Peter says, prepare your mind. You're going to be have the mind of Christ. Prepare to be opposed. And then lastly, prepare your mind with hope. Remember what he said in 3.15? Be ready to give an answer for the hope. Not just defending your doctrinal statement, although you need to be ready to do that, but tell us why you have hope. Tell us why you're not afraid. Tell us why you can be sued as a Christian and smile in the courtroom. Tell us why you're not afraid. Tell us why you hope, even though you'll be fired from your jobs, even though you'll be smeared in your communities. Why do you hope, Christian? Verse 5. There's two hopes. Number one is this. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be judgment. Notice what he says. But they will give an account to him. Not to us, by the way. To him. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
There's a final accountability in the court of God in which all men outside of the conscience cleansing, righteousness working, power of Jesus Christ are going to be judged according to God's standard of absolute holiness with no compromise. Christian, we have hope. The final arbiter has not spoken yet. Their trial date is still pending. In life and death, God is holding them accountable and bringing judgment to bear upon them. God has not abdicated us to defeat. He is going to judge them. Some of you I know because you talk to me. You're discouraged by what you see. And the question I have heard over and over again over the last year or two is, why isn't anybody doing anything? I'll be honest, I asked that question. And the answer is this, He is. He's storing up wrath upon wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. And they will answer. And my hope is not in any judgment I could render or anything I could do, but it is in what God will do because it will be perfect when He does it. Mine would be tinged with sinful anger. Mine would not be pure. But God's will be. And I hope and I rest in that. Is it hard to watch Christians suffer for doing what is right? Yeah, it is. Is it hard to think about James Coates in Canada being imprisoned and now his church encircled by three chain link fences and surrounded by 200 policemen just to keep them from... Yeah, it is. He and I have a lot of mutual friends. We went through the same training uh, together at the Master's Seminary. I mean, yes, that's upsetting. But we haven't heard the final word. God has not rendered verdicts yet for that and so we don't become discouraged christians we hope in this and then secondly and lastly under this point of preparing the mind with hope there's a judgment for life there's judgment for condemnation against those who reject god but lastly there's a judgment for life notice what he says in verse six for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. For the believer, we have a better hope. The Gospel has been preached and it has resulted in life for us. So that our judgment is this, not condemnation because we are in Christ, but life. Because we are in Christ. Some commentators point to the fact that believers still died physically. And the mockers mocked them. Yeah, so, so they believe this Jesus, living Jesus. And yet, look, they're dead. There's their body. There's their tomb. And Peter simply says this, the gospel has been preached for the purpose of life, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men. In other words, though the mocking of the world has come and say, yeah, right, your God raises the dead. Look, they're dead. He goes on and he says this. 
they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Who else lived in the Spirit? Go back to verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive, where? In the Spirit. How does Peter conclude our life? The Gospel of Christ. Dying for our sins. And being raised for our life and justification. It's been preached so that even though your relatives, your loved ones, your fellow Christians, they may die temporarily in the flesh. It's like I've told our younger students in our theology class, all your life, it's a little dash between two sets of numbers. It's not very long anyway. Don't worry about it. Even though we die in the flesh, we are alive in the Spirit. Why? Because God has willed it to be so. That gives me great hope. That tells me I can fight any battle. It's just temporary. It's just temporary. Christ is one, therefore I've won. My sins have been buried. My life is raised with Christ. Let demons and devils do their worst. Our victorious Savior has led the way. And Peter says, follow Him. Follow Him. His is the pathway to life. His is the pathway to victory. Christian, you are going to face opposition. You are going to be rejected by men. Some of you have felt that more acutely than others already. Some of you have felt it even coming from places that claim to be Christ followers. And that hurts. And it's painful and it is heartbreakingly sad. Arm your mind. Arm your mind. Prepare for battle. Prepare for opposition. But more than that, prepare for hope. For Christ is one. Unbeliever, you're facing no opposition in this world. You will face no opposition in this world. Not to speak of but you will face opposition greater than any opposition this world could afford when you stand before God. And the judgment He renders will be real and it will be final. And for you, I plead with you to arm yourself by repenting of your sin and turning to Christ. Confessing your sin and Throwing yourself on His mercy for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sin, because you cannot imagine the opposition. That's come. You think opposition in this world against Christians is something? Wait until you see the opposition of God against non-Christians. You must believe. You must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe that Christ lived and died and was raised for you. So that you will experience hope for eternity. Life eternal. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is good. It is powerful. It is true. Father, I pray that by Your Spirit we as believers would arm ourselves with the mind of Christ 
that we would be prepared to face the ridicule and the mocking and the blaspheming and the maligning of the world. And that ultimately we would be prepared in hope because Christ is risen. And all things are subjected under His feet. So Holy Spirit, as we leave this place today, I pray that the text of the Word of God would be etched and burned into our minds. That we would carry it and that we would filter everything we face in the week to come through what we've heard this morning. When we read or watch the news, let it go through the filter of the Word of God. When we, when we engage in relationships in the world, let it be through the Word of God. As we lament and we mourn and we struggle through this fallen world, let it be through the hope that is in the Word of God. And Holy Spirit, if there is someone here this morning who's not trusted Christ, they, they have fought against Christ rather than allied themselves with Christ. If they're still living in their sin, unrepentant, unconfessed, God, I pray that You would break them because You love them. And I pray that You would grant them a clarity to understand the, the, the gravity of their sin and the beauty that is in the forgiveness from Jesus. And bring them to faith in Christ. That they would confess Him as Lord and Savior. And experience the joy that comes from eternal hope. Do these things, Father, Son, and Spirit, to glorify Yourselves. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.